earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. We're up to session 15. We've been devoting significant time in these sessions to scrutinize some well-known Bible passages, thinking they mean one thing, yet discovering that in their context they actually reveal something much different or something much deeper. If you missed any sessions or want to catch up, just go to faithtalk1360.com, search the menu for local program podcasts, then scroll to a word from the word. Friends, I've also been reinforcing a truth keyed to our present series, Oh, That Verse Means That? And my cue is from the Apostle Peter. In his first letter, he reminds his readers of truths he's already taught them. Reminders help us, don't they? Well, here's mine again. The Bible has a story to tell us, doesn't it? In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, many times we preachers, teachers, and pastors, as well as Christians in general, make, even force, or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. And whether we do this knowingly or unknowingly, I still say, shame on us. Well, friends, I'm going to hold off naming today's Session 15 so I don't steal my own thunder and give too much away. But together, we're going to sharpen our observation skills regarding a well-known and often taught portion of Scripture, John 1, 1 through 18. You can probably recite John 1, 1 from memory, right? And you've likely heard more than one sermon on John chapter 1. So please don't change the station. There's a wealth of spiritual truth in these verses that are literally inexhaustible. I promise you'll be illuminated. In fact, I'm going to propose that to fully appreciate these opening 18 verses and protect ourselves from reading it like it's the hundredth time. Let's first block out a little time and explore the backstory like we've never done before. Friends, we preachers and teachers are often guilty of divorcing this portion of Scripture from a context that is absolutely essential to fully appreciate and grasp just what John was telling his first century audience. Here's an occasion where we must put on our first century sandals, as one of my Bible college professors used to drill into our minds as students. And friends, the relevant context for this backstory are the Hebrew religious backdrop, along with the pagan religious backdrop, particularly manifested in the Greek mystery religions flourishing at the time. 
The potpourri of Greek mystery cults highly influenced the Greco-Roman world, and one in particular was encroaching on the early and fledgling Christian congregations. This cult was known as Gnosticism, beginning with a G, and Gnostic teachings infiltrated and impacted the early church during its first few centuries. The word Gnosticism originated from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis, spelled with a G. Gnostics believed that knowledge, particularly secret knowledge, was essential for salvation. So it's no wonder several key New Testament writers condemn Gnosticism, such as the Apostles Paul, John, and Jude. Friends, our knowledge of Gnosticism comes from two sources outside the New Testament, the Gnostics' writings themselves and the writings against Gnosticism by some of the early church fathers in the late 1st century and into the 2nd century. Naturally, the third source against Gnosticism is our New Testament itself. Those of us with our detective's hat on, our pocket magnifying glass in hand, and our Berean's mind have gained sufficient working knowledge, no pun intended, of Gnostic lingo to unveil it when it surfaces, as in Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and possibly 1st Corinthians, in John's Gospel and his three letters, and Jude. Under this Gnostic teaching base was the Greek philosophy of dualism, that God and spirit are good, and the world and matter are evil. Therefore, the created order was evil, inferior, and opposed to the good. Gnostics accepted that their God created the original order, but that successive orders were the work of anti-gods, or subordinate gods, called archons a Greek word, by the way, used by Paul in Colossians and Ephesians and by Peter in 1 Peter. Therefore, Gnostics held that the fullness of their God was actually divided up among a number of angelic-like beings, the last one creating the material world. For Gnostics, fullness signified the sum total of all supernatural forces, be they angelic beings or spirits, that ruled people's fate. And the spiritual detective has already seen this word crop up in Colossians and realized that Paul intentionally arms himself with a Gnostic term, flips it on its head, and redefines it to mean the fullness of God, which is manifested in Jesus Christ, clearly declaring that Jesus was not just one of the archons and did not possess only a portion of God's fullness. Another key Gnostic belief was that the earth is surrounded by cosmic spheres, usually seven, but some believe twelve, to coincide with the zodiac. These spheres stand between humans and the Gnostic god of light, keeping them apart. The spheres are ruled by and guarded by the archons, also called spiritual principalities and powers. Ding, ding, ding. These designations appear in Colossians and Ephesians. These archons have the power to bar or disqualify human souls attempting to rise through the spheres to reach the Gnostic god of light and return to the light from the material world of darkness. In Colossians 2.18, Paul uses the word disqualify against the Gnostics. Friends, salvation for the Gnostics occurs when the human spirit is awakened by knowledge 
knowledge, allowing the inner person or their soul to be released from bondage to their earthly body and finally return to their realm of light, being reunited to the Gnostic God of light. However, penetrating each of these spheres requires additional knowledge, which Gnostic teachers were happy to dispense at a price. The Gnostics viewed Jesus Christ as just one of many spirits existing in this hierarchy of angelic beings. He was merely one emanation from their God, possessing only a portion of his fullness, attributes, and deity. I hope we're beginning to see, friends, that there are grand biblical themes embedded in our New Testament that counteract the religious systems prevalent in the first century culture, systems antagonistic to the person and work of Jesus, which the New Testament writers vigorously sought to defend. Just listen to Jude verse 3, and I'm reading from an older, little-known, but good translation, the Montgomery New Testament. Beloved, although I was making all haste to write to you in regard to our common salvation, I am compelled to write you an appeal to defend the faith, once for all committed to the saints. For certain men have crept in stealthily, men predestined in ancient prophecies for this condemnation, impious ones, they pervert the grace of God into licentiousness, or a license for immorality, and deny Jesus Christ, our sole master and Lord. This compelling drive to defend the Judeo-Christian body of beliefs handed down by Jesus' disciples and apostles led some New Testament writers to introduce their readers to what I call a cultic vocabulary. In other words, a set of terms and phrases that were particularly significant to their first century audience and for which we, as 21st century Christ followers, would do well to learn. For it'll help us counteract the false teachings flourishing in our generation and arm us to be on guard and stand ready to defend the body of Christ, which is being infiltrated with secret heresies. You see, friends, we're faced with the same challenges. Throughout her history, the church has been plagued with and subtly influenced by Gnostic ideas, cloaked as truth, and the modern evangelical church is not exempt. Gnosticism has been repackaged as the New Age movement, which has impacted our contemporary culture by springing on us secular humanism. The more liberal churches in our day have embraced this very belief system. The ultimate modern manifestation of Gnosticism, friends, is seen in the quote-unquote religion of Scientology. And each of these false religious systems has their own cultic vocabulary. Perhaps you found this out when dialoguing with some of the cults or aberrant Christian sects. They're usually using the same words we use, but they've poured into them totally different meanings. My take is that both John and Paul understood this cultic vocabulary very well, and I propose that they intentionally repackaged these terms and phrases, turning them around to build a bridge to the Gnostic-influenced false teachers. And by doing this, they've elevated these terms to a loftier level and connected them to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, serving to challenge and correct their errors while protecting their church communities. Phew, that was sure a mouthful, wasn't it? 
But friends, I believe now we're ready to hear the first 18 verses of John's Gospel with first century ears. So put on your spiritual antenna up and notice how John utilizes these ideas of light and darkness and introduces a unique term to unveil just who Jesus really is. So today I'm going to avoid using English translations. Instead, I'm going to read from an interlinear and insert some Greek meanings of the words in the text for our benefit and to reinforce what John is communicating to his audience. This will sound a little stiff, but you'll gain the essence of what John is saying in first century Greek. Along the way, I'll need to define some terms to capture the foundational meanings these terms express. Let's remember John's audience, friends. The community to whom John is writing is a mixture of converted pagan Gentiles who've been highly influenced by Gnosticism and a smattering of Jewish converts who must jettison their legalistic perception of their Hebrew scriptures force-fed to them by their Jewish religious leaders. And hovering over John's communities like a shadow is the prevailing influence of Gnostic beliefs. We'll see that John's initial concern is communicating clearly just who the true light of the universe really is. So, friends, are you ready to let our fingers do the walking through John 1, 1 through 18? Okay, here we go. Buckle up your spiritual seatbelts and hang on for the ride. In the beginning was the Logos. English translations have word here, and this will be our first stop. Logos is not a Christian word, but a pagan term common in the first century Greco-Roman world. Embedded in Greek culture and Greek philosophy, Logos was not just the spoken word, as we might think, but also the unspoken word harboring in the human mind and representing the human ability to reason. The Logos was also believed to represent the rational principle that governs the entire created order. Some synonyms that help define this word in first century lingo might be communication. In other words, the communication of the one true creator God, pointing back to Genesis chapter 1. Also, message. In other words, a different and special message is about to be given, one that will unfold as John's prologue continues. And by the way, John's opening two words, in beginning, intentionally take us back to Genesis chapter 1, building a bridge and making a parallel to eternity past. So this Logos has no beginning. The Logos is eternal. The Logos always existed, as is seen in the Greek word for was, in beginning was. And friends, this will be our second stop. I suspect that John is prepping us with a hint of what's to come in his gospel, because our little English word was is a big deal in the Greek. It means already was or already existed. It communicates self-existent life, life with eternality. And friends, we've been exposed to this idea without really knowing it. Recall Jesus' I am statements later on in this gospel? Probably the most known is, Before Abraham was born, I am, in John 8:58. These words for I am are ego emi. And guess what? Emi is the word here in John 1, 1 for our word was. In beginning was. Isn't that cool? 
It's as if John is giving us a veiled reference to the I am long before he unveils him later in his gospel. And our little word was here also counteracts the false claim that Jesus was a created being, as one cult group contends. The Logos was uncreated, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And this will be our third stop, another little word, with. But it packs a big punch. It doesn't seem that big to us in English, but the Greek word means toward, to interface with, implying interaction. In other words, reciprocating, reacting, or responding to. Friends, the beauty of these two phrases is that one protects us from wrongly interpreting the other. The second phrase, and the word was God, can be thought to mean that God and the word are the same person. But no, the first phrase protects us from drawing that conclusion, and with is the pivotal word that protects us. If God and the word, the Logos, are in a relationship, are face-to-face, responding to each other, they can't be one and the same person. These two phrases force us to conclude that if God and the Word are not the same person, they must be the same in essence or nature. After all, friends, isn't this what John's mission is in his gospel? To provide evidence that Jesus is in fact God in the flesh? To provide proof that Jesus, as God's Son, while being God, was separate and distinct from God the Father? The New Testament writers were able to connect the dots and express themselves accordingly. Matthew's account of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist has the sky open, a voice from above talking, and a dove descending on the God-man Jesus. The voice says, This is my Son, whom I love. John the Baptist testifies that the dove was a pictorial representation of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus, three in one, yet separate and distinct. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we find Jesus addressing his Father in prayer, saying, Not as I will, but as you will, acknowledging that he and his Father each have their own will. Later in John's Gospel, in 1030, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, we've already been protected from improperly interpreting this statement, haven't we? (laughs) Well, we're doubly protected by this little word, one, here. It's not masculine, not feminine, but neuter in the Greek. So, friends, tenses are important, too. This statement is properly interpreted to mean that Jesus and the Father are not one person, but one in nature or essence, perfectly harmonizing with John 1.1. And Jesus' eternality is reinforced in verse 2. This one, the Logos, was in beginning with God. Verse 3 continues, Through him, first use of the personal pronoun, all things came to be, and without him not one thing came to be which came into being. Notice, friends, John is a master at unfolding his drama of the identity of this one he's describing. We lose some of this in our English translations. John begins with the word, then calls the word this one, and only in verse 3 is him used, verifying that this word is a person, and not merely a spirit being. 
And Paul masterfully composes his hymn to Christ in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, validating that Jesus has always been God, yet became human and lived among us. Friends, the scriptures are unified in counteracting false teachings that have merged since the first century. The opening verses in John's gospel have challenged the false claims that Jesus was a created being, challenging the false claims of modalism that Jesus and the Father were one person, challenging the false notion that the Logos was a lesser or subordinate deity, a deputy god as one cult claims challenging the Gnostic idea that Jesus was merely one emanation from their God of light, whose own light dimmed and became darker over distance. Okay, friends, here comes the crux of John's message, verse 4. In him the Logos was life, and that life was the light of humankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. In other words, seize it, hold on to it, perceive it, comprehend and understand it. He was the light, the true one, which enlightens every person coming into the world. The word grasp has been variously translated as overcome, comprehend, extinguish, quench, suppress, overpower, put it out, which is precisely what the false teachers could not do to the revelation of who Jesus Christ really was, and precisely what the Christ followers of the first century would not allow, and precisely, friends, what we Christ followers in the 21st century must not allow. Jesus enlightened every person he came in contact with. Now, via the Holy Spirit, he's doing the same thing. This counteracts the Gnostic claim that secret enlightenment is needed. Now, friends, as I read verse 14, put your Gnostic thinking cap on and imagine how this would sound to you, knowing that the material world was evil, meaning that human skin and bone were evil, and only the human spirit was pure. And the Logos became flesh and tabernacled or pitched a tent or temporarily dwelt among us. And we gazed upon his glory, glory as of an only one son from the father, full of grace and truth. And here's where the Jewish converts had a point of contact. Their memories would be jogged by this word tabernacle. It would remind them of the tent of meeting filled with the glory of God in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 40. For these newborn Jews, the Logos is now the glory of God, equal in glory to God. Note John 17, 1 through 5, and Isaiah 42, 8. The Logos being declared the Son of God also has messianic implications per Psalm 2. And thanks to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, some 200 years before Jesus, Logos took on the meaning of God speaking the universe into existence and now governing it. We see this in many Psalms. The Logos for Jews also referred to the Law of Moses and the Prophets per Deuteronomy 30 and 32. Rabbis of old said that the law lays on God's bosom while he sat on the throne of glory. The King James translators must have recognized this, for verse 18 in the King James says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Cool, huh? 
And declared is an awesome word, friends. It's the Greek word exegesis. Some of you may have heard it. It means to explain, interpret, declare, relate. Metaphorically, to draw out or unfold in teaching. There's a beautiful flashback of this in Nehemiah 8, 1 through 10. Please read it. But here, Jesus is the true and perfect interpretation of God, the perfect declarer of God, which will lead me to finally reveal my title for today's session, Jesus, the exegesis of God, to which we must say, Amen. Well, friends, you might be thinking, what's all this biblical technobabble supposed to do for us? My hope is to motivate all of us as Christ followers in the 21st century to follow in the footsteps of Jude and Peter. Jude told us to contend for the faith that was for once all delivered. Peter told us to always be prepared or ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope we have. Because, friends, we're living in dangerous times, dangerous politically, dangerous economically, dangerous medically, dangerous socially, but a danger far greater than these exists. It's the clear fact that it's dangerous spiritually. False teachers and false teachings abound in our own evangelical churches, on TV, radio, the internet, videos, books, and recordings. How is it, friends, that so many of us cannot discern these errors anymore? The first duty of a Christ follower must be to the truth. After all, Jesus did say he was the truth. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program, which will close with an email where you may write me with your feedback. One listener wrote in regarding part 13, under armor or under armored with this. I love listening to your programs. They're always informative and interesting. I really enjoyed the message on the armor. We have to be vigilant, applying the whole armor of God. It's the only way we can do this. Well, thanks for that encouraging comment. And remember, friends, a word from the word is a listener-supported program. Kindly consider financially helping to keep this program on the air during these challenging times. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.